would not wish any companion in the world but you. Love as a choice. Welcome to If It Ain't Baroque podcast. On this episode of our Valentine series, we're looking at couples that were together by choice. One of them is a monarch, the other, their faithful consort, whether married or not. No matter the status, one thing is clear. The evidence of this love has echoed through the centuries and the historians are in no doubt what these people felt for each other. Please welcome back Chris Riley. And the first couple we're talking about is from the Anglo-Saxon times. It's Harold Godwinson and his first wife, Edith Swanneck. Okay, so Harold and Edith, are, they're always a weird match to me because they're a love match, but they never get married. Mm. What was marriage like back then? Was it as important or a priority as it is maybe like 100 years later? Yeah, so that's a good question, actually, because I think we we paint the medieval, you know, a thousand years of history. We paint it with the same brush. And mm. as you've kind of alluded to there, the, the 11th century and the 12th century are virtually different worlds. Harold Godwinson, or King Harold II, as we should probably call him by his proper title, um, and uh, Edith Swanneck, his apparent common law wife, which I guess is somewhat controversial, you know, is a common law marriage still a marriage? And I think, I guess to answer your question directly is, I don't think marriage was as important as it was maybe a generation or two later. Um, you know, this is the period where bastards can inherit titles as, you know, a certain William did over the over the English Channel. And it was more who was in the right place at the right time and and I guess it was probably a more a bit more of a free society in terms of who you could marry, who you could have kids with, and what those kids could then, I guess, inherit. Do you think that he knew at one point he might be king and he was holding out for a better catch marriage-wise, legally? That's probably a good assumption to make because, I guess for context, Edith is not of, as far as we know anyway, noble birth. She comes from a Scandinavian family. We She may be a descendant of Ethelred the Unready. But again, with this period, unfortunately, little is actually known detail-wise. So Harold, even if he's not king, he's still the most powerful noble in England as Earl of Wessex. He's basically, you know, the most, the second most important man after the king, which I guess prior to him becoming king is, is Edward the Confessor. So yeah, I'm assuming he expected to be on the throne longer than sort of 10 months. And maybe once he dealt with Harold Hadrada and William, not the conqueror yet, he would have probably lined up a, a suitable marriage for himself. You know, he may have even married a, a, a relative of William the conqueror. You know, the, the Norman dukes were powerful in their own right. He may have married into Scotland or into Flanders or Brittany. There's so many options. He may have stayed in England. He may have he may have married a you know a daughter of the Earl of Northumbria or Mercia or, or wherever. So. It's weird because, like you said, Edith and, and Harold are seen as this great love match because by all accounts, they were truly in love. They had multiple children. They had no dynastic reason to be together. So I guess from my point of view, they must have been in love, right? Because mm -hmm. at this point, there's only two things you would get married for because you actually like each other or because it's important for, for your dynasty. So yeah, they're, they're obviously their marriage was cut very short on the 14th of October, 1066, when Harold may or may not have taken an arrow in the eye, and either way, he does die. Unless you don't believe that he did. I know some people believe he, he ran off to be a hermit somewhere, but that's another episode. <gasps> oh, I've seen that. I've seen that recently, actually. Yeah. yeah. I think everybody who dies in medieval England becomes a hermit as well. That seems <laughs> I was to going always to say be that. the option. There was a, a thing about Edward II having the mm. same outcome as well, wasn't there? I actually believe that. I actually I think there's quite a lot of episodes. That. 
I, yeah. I believe there's more evidence for that, 100. Yeah. percent That's believable. That's, uh, yeah, but again, that's that's another episode, isn't it? Yeah. For the day. <laughs> yeah. So um, how did they meet? Do we know how they meet? It's so murky. Mm. Um, this period of history, we have the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is a an ecclesiastical ecclesiastical, which is very tough for me to say. Apparently, document um, that basically says, you know, this happened, then this happened, then it's the next year. Um, and then we have the Norman Chronicles, which talk just terribly about Harold Godwinson and the and the native Anglo-Saxons, we'll call them. So it's very, very difficult to, to, to piece these together. I guess the most important and the biggest part of, of these two as a couple is what happens at the end, which is when, when Harold is probably most definitely laid dead and, and the battle outside and, and the field outside of uh, the village of battle is it's only through Edith's intimate knowledge of, of Harold's body that they can identify the king and and have him buried properly so i wonder with with relationships like this i wonder what would have happened if things had have changed if things would have gone differently because would they have like you said would they have would she have just been one of the mistresses to harold would she have married him and it would have been controversial or not controversial you know would their children have been first in line or would there have been other children it's yeah it's so it's a genuine mystery yeah, I was going to ask that. Do you think, because he does actually get married, do you think her children would have had priority over the throne? I think it would have been a messy succession. I think it would have <laughs> yeah. been very similar to how it was pretty much after Ethelstan died in, in the 10th century. You know, it was a period of 100 years where you have brothers killing brothers and a Scandinavian mm. invasion or two just to make things ex- exciting and I think we would have it would not have settled as it did for about 30 years and then it gets bad again but I think there would have probably been two groups two camps there would have been the actual children that he had with Edith and then potential future children with a with a suitable in quotation marks bride mm. but ultimately anything could have happened the, the, you know the, the sons could have died they could have they could have joined the church they could have been completely fine with letting you know a more suitable half-brother inherit anything could have happened now let's go forward four centuries and find out from chris how did edward the fourth the victor of towton marry a widow of his enemy elizabeth woodville i've always loved this couple i think they're my favorite but they're not exactly a very traditional couple Mm. at the time period she was much older she had children already she didn't have a a fortune or anything her family were kind of seen as inferior and she was a Lancastrian marrying a Yorkist. So do you think all of this proves that this was a love match? I think ultimately knowing the Wars of the Roses, knowing Edward IV, knowing everything that happens around them, it has to have been. Because again, similar to Edith and Harold, there's so many implications for that relationship that could have meant, you know, you know, bad things for, for the king that why would you essentially risk it if it wasn't for love? Mm. You know, like you said, Elizabeth Woodville, probably one of the most notorious women in English medieval history, for, for better or for worse, depends on how you think, feel about her. But, you know, she's the, she's the daughter of a, of a minor Lancastrian knight. She's been married before. She's got children from a previous marriage. She is, like you said, she's the definition of unsuitable because Edward isn't, you know, Edward, the Duke of this, the Earl of that. Edward's the King of England, at probably one of the most traumatic or or volatile times to be a King of England. 
which is saying something if you if you if you know medieval history. So it has to be for love. They have a, a romantic meeting, but I don't think today we would probably call it romantic anymore. Can you tell us about how they met? Yeah, so I mean it's very, very it's basically like myth and legend at this point, how they meet. I, I heard one. I don't know if this is the one you you're referring to. Is they they met under a tree and they married in secret after something may or may not have happened between the two of them. And yeah, we we don't even know when they married. It may have been in around 1464-ish. There's multiple reports of who married them. And then people say, no, it wasn't me. I didn't marry them. I wasn't there. And he, Edward was already married. And, you know, there's all sorts of things. And it's a proper fairy tale relationship. Yeah. There's a story about her saying no a few times, but mm. him, him not taking the hint. Yeah, it's very much like, seems a bit like Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, mm. where it's like, um, um, you know, Anne refused to be a mistress and waited essentially to be his wife, which is fair play. Yeah. And it, it seems, which is funny because people say that Henry VIII was very much like his grandfather, uh, Edward IV. So I guess the apple doesn't far, <laughs> fall far from the royal tree, does it? <laughs> nope. <laughs> so they seem to have a successful marriage. Mm. If if we look at the amount of children they had, do you think that's an accurate assumption? It is based on numbers, but based on how long the children last, mm. give or take, it's yeah, it's it's an unfortunate marriage because yeah, they they deliver on the promise of a marriage at this period of of delivering a you know a gaggle of children, and I guess on one half. There's insane success. There's, a, there's an immense success that is kind of realized later, but the immediate male orientated success is, is very, very short lived. Um, so I'm, I'm referring to the princes in the tower, <laughs> Edward V and his brother Richard, um, who weren't seen again in public in England. I'm trying to be diplomatic because I still don't know where I sit on this one. The children of, of, of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville. Very, very mixed fates, I think. Yeah. How much power and agency did Elizabeth have in the relationship? I think she must have had a considerable amount based on the fact that they stayed together. Mm. And again, I think this this goes back to the question about was it a love match? I think for Edward IV to be this warrior king, this he defeated every Lancastrian he'd ever come across. He was all in, you know, in the in the 1460s and 70s barring a little blip in the middle, things seem to be going really well for the House of York and Edward IV. So for this man of such confidence and bravado to allow his wife to cause him so many problems, and just by existing, essentially, um, she must have had an incredible amount of influence over, over her husband. She must have done. I mean, notoriously, um, people weren't really too chuffed with the Woodville's being in power. Mm. And... Um, Edward's brothers weren't big fans of Elizabeth herself. So no. what was the relationship like with the in-laws? It was terrible. I mean, you know, we see this time and time again with medieval couples. It's always, it's easy to throw negative remarks and, you know, throw shade at the, let's say, for lack of a better phrase, the lesser party, which in this is, you know, Elizabeth Woodville. She's, I guess, the closest to the king. So if the king's making bad decisions, well, it must be Elizabeth you know, whispering mm. in his ear, giving him poor advice, you know, who are all these Woodvilles coming out of the woodwork, pardon the pun, you know, they want 
they want titles and lands and money and you know you know we're over here as established lords and they're taking from us so ultimately it's it's like jealousy but also like fear of the unknown obviously the 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 I guess the most famous detractor of Elizabeth Woodville is um, the Earl of Warwick, Richard Neville, who's a character all in himself and someone I detest from a from a historical point of view. I think he's an awful human that caused a lot more problems than uh, than he was worth. But he had a good reason to not like Elizabeth Woodville in the fact that he was doing his best to secure an, an international marriage for for Edward, who was his great friend and patron, who he he chose Elizabeth over over. Warwick and his plans for 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 England. So again, it goes back to this thing that they must have been in love because Edward the Fourth wasn't an idiot. He was a very, I think he's actually probably one of the more underrated kings of England because I guess of how badly it ends just after him. Um, but he was very very astute and he knew what he was doing. So to go against someone like Warwick um, and like you know, like you said, his own brothers, George Duke of Clarence, wasn't a big fan and. Richard, who was Duke of Gloucester at this point, by all accounts, didn't get on with the Woodvilles as as we will, as you see later in the Princess in the Tower and you know everything that happens there. But it it always seems to be the way with the in laws; they just don't they just don't get on with the established aristocracy and the, the established family at court. Yeah, they don't like it when there's a foreign bride, but they don't like mm. it when there's an English bride. You it's, can't win. Yeah, you can't. Because you did say that Edward was quite clever and wasn't a stupid guy. Do you think that maybe he had tried to do what down the line Henry Seventh and Elizabeth of York would do to bring the two sides together? Do you think that was maybe in his thinking? I don't think it was as, con- as consideration because I don't think at that time it was something that would have been considered. The Lancastrians mm. were beat. There was no Lancastrian claimant, really. Edward the Fourth dies in 1483 only at 40 years old but he probably died thinking everything is fine my son mm. edward will will yes he's a young lad but he will inherit the throne with you know his 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 uncle richard duke of gloucester looking out for him and um, and i think he died with that bit of peace he was wrong for anyone that's wondering very wrong i mean maybe there was a bit of bit of that in the back of his mind like you know this it may not seem like a political marriage but it, it really was you know she mm. was the daughter of a Lancastrian knight this is very much the Wars of the Roses so you know this is these families don't get on but no I, th- I think it's a, an interesting comparison because that's such a clear and obvious mm. political marriage between Elizabeth of York the daughter of, of Edward and Elizabeth Woodville um, and Henry the Seventh you know, the the real claim to the Tudor throne, we'll call it, is through the Yorkist line, through Elizabeth. So mm. it meant a lot more to Henry VII or Henry Tudor, um, the usurper. I'm not a fan of the Tudors, in case people are wondering. Um, <laughs> you know, it meant a lot more to him to unite the two houses, whereas Edward IV didn't really need to. Edward was notorious womanizer. Yeah. How did Elizabeth deal with all the mistresses? I mean, mistresses are, are a weird kind of thing to discuss because I don't think anybody would like it, really, overall. I mean, I wouldn't like it, but it was somewhat accepted. Yeah, Edward IV is one of the great womanizers of medieval mm. history up there with Henry I for being, you know, pretty, I guess, good at it, if, if that's the way to describe it. But, you know, Elizabeth knew that her position at court was precarious at best, so she probably stayed very quiet. She didn't 
I'm imagining the conversations between Elizabeth and Edward weren't very polite, but they got on well enough to have 10 children together. You know, they were married for, you know, well over a decade. They were married mm. for for a, pretty much the entirety of, of Edward's reign as, as king. So they got on enough to have a successful marriage in terms of, of medieval history. So, yeah, I can't imagine she was best pleased, but also I don't think she expected anything less. Is there any stories of the love for each other or anything romantic uh, left to history? I think the, the main the main thing is is the story of the of the tree mm. and them getting married in secret, which seems to be a theme as I was kind of researching these episodes. It, it seems to be a theme that love marriages seem to happen in secret under trees and like in <laughs> in the same circumstance. But yeah, it's always it's always difficult when you look back on couples like Edward the Fourth and Elizabeth Woodville, because they're wrapped up in so much political discussion. Mm. Are you a Yorkist? Are you Lancastrian? Are you a fan of the Tudors? Are you a Plantagenet? You know, everybody has a bias. I have absolutely no issue with Elizabeth Woodville. I know a lot of people do. A lot of Yorkists have an issue with the Woodvilles. I guess they're more Ricardians, but you know, I, I, it's it, they're one of those difficult couples to discuss. You know, it's not Edward the First and Eleanor of Castile. It's it's a political relationship now, so. It's uh, it's difficult to kind of place them accurately, I think. So Edward died really young. How did Elizabeth take that, not politically, but personally? Is there any moments of grief for him? I think one of the worst things about this, about the story, is how Elizabeth doesn't seem to have the time to grieve. She's very mm. much, which is, I guess, common for the period. You're very much whisked into the next the next reign very quickly. Her role as queen changes. And in normal situations, she would have, you know, helped her son become king. But she very intelligently, I think, realizes that on the death of Edward, that things are going to change quite rapidly without her having much control over it. You know, we've already mentioned that her family, um, you know, her sons from a previous marriage and they weren't popular. Um, so she make sure that she's safe by going into sanctuary at Westminster Abbey. She takes her daughters. I guess the controversial thing is she doesn't take her sons who end up in the tower. But, you know, you you spend, I think it was 19 years they were married. I think you spend that amount of time with someone, even though you, you may not have got on all the time and, you know, it might not have been perfect, you know, with Edward's mistresses and, you know, things like that. You, you, you absolutely will grieve immensely. It's, um, it's a long time to to live with someone to then have to live without. But yeah, I'm, I always feel very sorry for Elizabeth because no matter what her family wanted, grasping at this, grasping at that, apparently, she was still just a person at the end of the day who'd lost her husband and would, for all intents and purposes, lose her, her, her two sons, whether they were lost to the continent or or murdered on, on somebody's orders. Um, she, I don't think she was allowed to grieve at all, which is which is rubbish and unfair. Oh, I'm a big fan of Elizabeth. I'm, I'm guessing nice. that, yeah. <laughs> she's misunderstood, as many of these women are, unfortunately. <laughs> That's true. I'm actually a big fan. What, what do you, where are you, Natalie? Fan? Uh, ever since I saw and read and uh, researched The White Queen, so what about a decade now? Yeah, kind of when you yeah. see it from her perspective, then you kind of think, oh yeah, that's that's very sad, yeah. Yeah. Two decades of marriage and then literally, yeah, overnight, just <laughs> like Chandler Bing, this did not just happen. And then, you know, husband's dead and you're no longer queen, but you want to be at least 
Queen Mother Dowager, my lady, the Queen's mother or something. Yeah. So yeah. Um, and yeah, like I said, no time to grieve. So it's very sad. Mm. Yeah. Now let's fast forward to the Tudor times. Henry's daughter, Elizabeth, also had a heart. And that heart was firmly given to Robert Dudley, her favorite. Clemmy Bennett is here with us to shine the light on this regal pairing. Elizabeth and Dudley, how did they meet or how did they know each other? Actually, they had known each other since they were children. Dudley was the son of John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland. Yeah, they had known each other since they were children. They actually, they were both imprisoned uh, in the tower during the reign of Mary I, probably both fearing for their necks, considering that Elizabeth's mother had been beheaded and Dudley's father had been beheaded as well. For them both to be in a tower, they probably both feared that they would be the same fate. So probably, I don't know, I think that that just creates a bond as well. <laughs> so yeah, they had, they had known each other their whole lives, really, and they were, they were trauma bond, definitely. And so very, very quickly after Elizabeth became queen, there's actually this story about Dudley just riding to meet her on a white horse, like, you know, like on a, on a real chivalric stories. Henry VIII would have just been a sucker for it. Um, <laughs> and yeah, just shortly after she became queen, she appointed him as master of the horse, uh, which was a position that would allow her to see him pretty much every day and give a reason to talk to him every day. So yeah, it was honestly, it was painfully obvious to anyone at court that they were attracted to each other in terms of physical attraction, but also emotional. They were emotionally close. They were comfortable with one another. I do really believe that they loved each other. And then uh, I'm also, I also firmly believe that Elizabeth never gave up on her attraction. She never gave up on her principle to remain a virgin. I think that it may be another debate, but I think that she was uh, traumatized by what had happened in her childhood. So what happened to Anne, to Anne Boleyn, to Catherine Howard, and the fact that Catherine Parr died in, in childbirth as well. The fact that uh, Thomas Seymour, so the, the last husband of Catherine Parr, took advantage of Elizabeth and mm. molested her, sexually assaulted her, kissed her, raped her. There are actually records of her having panic attacks every time that uh, marriage was mentioned or some sort. Like she begged on her knees her sister not to marry her to anyone. I really believe that she was traumatized. She was very anxious. Uh, it's, very, it's quite difficult now to imagine Gloriana having panic attacks, but yeah. she did have panic, panic attacks. And it, very often the manifestation of it was, well, you know, panic attack, but she would also vomit quite a lot. I really, 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 and I can't stress that enough, I really don't believe that she ever had sex with Dudley. Mm. I think that she loved him so much and that he loved her. And if, you know, if she had said yes to Dudley, uh, he would have just jumped in her bed, like very <laughs> happy. But Elizabeth, I really don't think Elizabeth ever did have sex with him. She swore on her deathbed that, she had never had sex with him. And when people disregard that, again, it bugged me a little bit because this was a completely different century. This yeah. was a century where when the fear of God was immense, when people cared more about their eternal life than their earthly life, the earthly life was just temporary. It was 
you know, it's just waiting, just a waiting room for the for the eternal life. Myself, I tend to believe anything that someone said on their deathbed because that's when the truth came out. People were just terrified of being sinners on their deathbed and lying and then having to deal with the consequences in the afterlife. And so Elizabeth said that she never had sex with Dudley and I wholeheartedly believe her. I also just tend to believe women when they say something about their bodies, but that's just another topic again. <laughs> Religion was too much for her to lie. Yeah. Uh, she loved Dudley. I am convinced that she loved him, but she never she never had sex with him. And somehow it makes it even more tragic and more beautiful as well. I always think that she was a little bit traumatised by her sister's marriage because that was not a good marriage. And I think watching her become queen and what she dealt with from her husband must have been quite traumatising for Elizabeth. I can imagine just that happening. Um, I think that Elizabeth's experience with marriage and mm-hmm. and the sex that came with it, uh, so childbirth and everything, it was all, it was terrible. She had a mother who was beheaded by her father um, because of adultery officially. Uh, and then she had four stepmothers, and that's not even counting Catherine of Aragon that came before. She had four stepmothers. She had another stepmother uh, who was beheaded by her husband. She had a stepmother who died in childbirth. Elizabeth was there to see how poorly treated she was by Thomas Seymour. She mm. was there to see how, I mean, I think it's a direct quote from Catherine Parr on her, again, on her deathbed, that she had been so poorly handled by, um, by Thomas Seymour. So Elizabeth was there. She, she saw what it did to these amazing women. And then... Again, she was there, as you said, when Mary I was uh, married to Philip II of Spain. She she saw how terrible a husband he was and how how devastated Mary was when every time Philip proved that he didn't love her the way that Mary loved him. Mm. She was also there for the phantom pregnancies. So Mary, Mary I had two phantom pregnancies. Um, there were obviously devastating on a, on an emotional level, but it was, I would say, equally devastating on a political level. She was ridiculed by these two phantom pregnancies. Elizabeth saw everything. She saw all of that. And I really, I really think that she, you know, marriage, childbirth, she equaled it to death and problems and ridicules and losing her power, losing her yeah. influence, losing her independence, uh, her choice of remaining single, of remaining a virgin as well, actually makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. We're talking about um, Elizabeth and Dudley being in love, but at the very beginning of her reign and into her reign a little bit, he's married. <laughs> the man's actually yes. married. <laughs> um, yeah, he was married to Amy Robson. She died in very mysterious circumstances. I think she died in, in 1560. She was found at the bottom of the stairs with a broken neck. And even now, it is hotly debated uh, what happened. I would love to know what happened. Point is, if we circle back to the beginning of our conversation, some historians will, will interpret the facts 
in a way and others will do it in another way so mm. some people will believe that it was an accident some people will believe that it was suicide some people will believe that it was malicious i tend to believe it was an accident like most of my studying my my research is not focused on elizabeth's brain so there are probably uh, informations that i don't have and I, i've spent less time thinking about it than than i did thinking about elizabeth before she became queen but i find it very very unlikely that it was malicious and even more unlikely uh that it was dudley because people already talked people already gossiped about the nature of his relationship to elizabeth if his wife turned up dead he would have been the first person to be pointed at and in fact he was and people a lot of people thought that he had done it and his reputation was well his reputation was never amazing but it became so much worse after the death of amy and because of this reputation because of the cloud that amy's death left on dudley's name it's not only because of that but because of that elizabeth and dudley could not marry if he hadn't done that he would have been the, the stupidest person ever because he would have been just like shooting himself in the foot i feel like elizabeth not like that amy died obviously not i'm sure she didn't she kind of used that to keep dudley on her side but oh we can't marry because this happened they kind of used it as an excuse if you know no I mean. definitely i think again elizabeth was human which means that she had lots of qualities but she also flaws and i think yeah. that she was a lot more like her father than she probably cared to admit and i think this self-centered uh, trait of their personality i mean she definitely shared that with him yes i think that's rather selfishly Elizabeth wanted to keep Dudley close uh, because mm. she loved him and he probably was very happy to because well first because he loved her back but also because she was the queen so in terms of career in terms of uh, being a courtier it was great it was quite selfish considering that Elizabeth was never going to let anything happen we can debate what happened uh, in private you know my opinion on this but in terms of the public sphere Elizabeth was never going to let anything happen mm. happen so it was quite selfish of her so she was keeping him close but also arms yeah. arms length you know so I do agree with you yeah. yeah there was always going to be a reason for her not to marry yeah, Dudley absolutely and he at one point gives up and marries her cousin of all people that just proves that he gives up but not entirely yeah. uh, he basically married her doppelganger she was tall and charming and uh, and red-headed. Uh, it was basically Elizabeth 2.0. Yeah, he married Lettice Knowles, so who was her cousin, technically the, the daughter of her cousin, of her first cousin. Uh, he married her in 1578. And for a few days no one told Elizabeth. <laughs> and when she found out, she was just furious, as you can imagine. When I say that she was self-centered like her father, she also had her mother's temper. Don't get me wrong she had a bunch of qualities from them both as well um I think she was an amazing queen but she had a fierce temper like I would not have liked to be at her court she she got really really furious and she actually never spoke to her cousin ever again she she eventually talked to Dudley again they resumed their 
whatever relationship that was. Um, but even Dudley, you know, for a little while, she was a bit cool with him. Yeah. But yeah, she loved him too much to stay angry at him forever. Yeah, she was. She was. Um, she was not pleased. <laughs> no, I always think that that kind of shows just how much she did love him. That she did speak to him again. She cut off her family, but would speak to him again. Do you know what I mean? No, absolutely. Um, is... um, I do think he was the love of her life when he died. Officially, she grieved. I think she called him her brother and best friend. But she she actually grieved the love of her life. He sent her a letter just before he died. Elizabeth kept that letter with her until until she died herself. She kept it with her every day. She actually wrote on the letter his last letter, which is heartbreaking. This is just tragic. This is beautiful. Mm. This is they loved each other and they could never have married. Actually, <laughs> this reminds me because when we did one of our episodes, we did and we remembered the human moment of mm. Elizabeth's of how she at one point wanted to marry Dudley off to Mary Queen of Scots. And it's it's just the best story. It's a little bit farcical. And I know that anything I've read about it from historians, they always say, it's it's very, we don't understand her. This is a very weird <laughs> thing to do. It may not be true because we just don't get it. And Jim and I were saying how it's actually, as a, as a woman, as a red-blooded human woman, uh, who has known, isn't me, and you, <laughs> and you, uh, you know, love and heartbreak and all that. As normal women, human women, we can we can say that, I don't know, for me, speaking, I get it. Because sometimes when you do these sort of kind of love games, you push them away, you push them closer, and you know, they're mine, they're not mine. Uh, even if it's very platonic, even if no one touches anyone, no one sees anyone's ankles, it's all perfectly legit, PG-13. Even in that case... I, I get it because then the best way to prove just also kind of really mean girlsy about it. So the best way to prove to, you know, everyone that you no, I don't care about him. You know, I'm I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna go and marry him off to my cousin, obviously. <laughs> it was a way to show everybody that she didn't care when no. clearly she cared. She I think it was a little bit of many of a few reasons all at once. And I think this is just so funny. She actually wanted Mary, Queen of Scots, to come over and they would live, all the three of them at court, <laughs> like a, I don't know, like a little happy family, like menage a trois again, <laughs> which is just hilarious. Just asking for a Queen Regnant to just come over, marry my best friend, and then we just live all together. <laughs> um, and also, it was, I think it was a, a, a way, and I don't know if it was intentional, knowing what I know about Elizabeth, I think it was intentional to insult Mary a little bit. She was a queen pregnant and she just offered Robert Dudley, the son of, I mean, an earl and the son, the son of a traitor, of an yeah. executed traitor. So it was really, <laughs> I don't think it was really kind to, to Mary, Queen of Scots. <laughs> no, I don't want him, but you can have him. Only if you stay <laughs> exactly, with me. Exactly, like, have my scraps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Knowing Mary, Queen of Scots' husbands, Robert Dudley actually would have been a good choice. Absolutely. <laughs> in retrospect, in yeah, retrospect. Yeah. I think the baggage that Dudley brought, though, was quite a lot, as an Elizabeth. Mm. I mean, that's, that's a lot. Can you imagine if they lived together? That would be awful. It begs Honestly, for a sitcom. That it really does. 
We welcome back Catherine Curzon on the podcast as we quiz her on the relationship of Catherine the Great and her favourite, Grigory Potomkin. So we're going to talk about Catherine the Great and what some people say is the love of her life, not her husband, (laughs) Potomkin. Potomkin, yes. She was married. She was. How was how was that marriage? Catherine's marriage was very much a marriage of dynastic convenience. So it wasn't a marriage of love. It was a marriage that was arranged because she was from the right sort of family and she wasn't thought to be from a family that was ambitious, but they got that wrong. The marriage was it was not really a marriage. Catherine's ambitions were for power and influence and Peter was not particularly interested in her as a wife. It took them quite a long time to consummate. The children they had were likely not his. And the marriage kind of reached its nat- natural end. <laughs> <when> <laughs> Unnatural. He, yeah, she led a coup that kicked him out of the country and he conveniently um, turned up his toes a little while later, leaving Catherine a widow and and an empress. So it's not a bad deal, is it? I'm very happy. Very, very happy, <laughs> yeah. A volunteer as tribute. <laughs> <laughs> So when it comes to Potomkin, when did the two of them meet and who was he? Catherine had an intimate friendship with a man named Gregory Orlov, who was one of the people that helped with the coup against her husband. And a lot of people thought that after the coup, after she was conveniently widowed, that she might marry Orlov, but she didn't. In fact, he was having too many affairs and Catherine very much wanted to be sort of the one and only. So she began to write to a man named Potemkin, who had been also involved in that coup. Um, And the letters were initially friendly. They swiftly became a little more heated than that. And eventually they met in a kind of like meet cute legend has it, when she was reviewing the troops, which sounds like a double entendre, but it wasn't. Um, (laughs) And she didn't have a sword knot part of her regalia. So he gallantly gave her his. He gave her a knot, gave her the knot. There was a huge amount of flirting going on. Very, very public flirting. And all these like funny stories that like he he bought his horse to stand next to hers and things like that. Kind of like they were getting a bit close and he was like gazing at her and he went down on one knee to do this and that. But that's how they met. And Catherine was an absolute sucker for flirting. She was a mistress, absolute first class at flirting, like Olympic gold medal. So they flirted back and forth and back and forth and she showered him in praise and honours. He very swiftly climbed the ranks and they weren't quite together at that point, but it was like a matter of time. You know, was, they were edging ever closer to bed, put it that way. <laughs> yeah. So when we talk about love affairs and royal mm. lives, sometimes we just assume they were lovers but there's quite a lot of evidence that these two were lovers, right? Yeah, there is. Um, there's quite a lot of evidence in the form of letters and writings. As we say before, Catherine wasn't particularly shy either, talking about what her life was like, what she what she got up to, as it were. I mean, there's always court gossip, but there's court gossip and then there's clearly eyewitness accounts court gossip. So, yeah, there was no secret about it. And nor did there need to be. You know, she was a widow. <laughs> you know, she was known to have favourites and... I think as well, like, who's going to dare to tell her, you know, or who's going to dare to say anything about it? Her husband just was kicked off his own throne. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of evidence, some of it from Catherine herself and from protecting herself. So, And it's mm. interesting because I, um, I actually used a love letter, live from a love letter in something that was written by the lover of George's first wife. 
And it was quite an explicit quote, that, and I used it in a piece of writing. And somebody actually said that that quote spoiled it because they didn't talk like that then. But it was an exact quote. So it's interesting as a tangent that people don't think, kind of like people in wigs and big dresses mm. talked like that, but they definitely did. And Catherine was quite an earthy kind of a gal. So, yeah, she was very happy with her trysts and she was very happy with Potemkin. Very, very. It's funny when you get some people who still think that the Victorians were just really not into sex. Ooh, and you're yeah. like, yes, they were. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing about, oh, they covered up table legs. Like, they really, <laughs> really were into sex. Like, they really were into sex. They had kids. That's how we know. They had exactly. kids. <laughs> they wouldn't <laughs> be Edwardians. <laughs> genuinely don't think that they were, or that it's almost like people can't... I don't know if it's a real thing in terms of this, that people don't want to imagine their rulers having sex. I don't know. But it's almost the kind of like, oh, we, we invented sex. You know, they, they didn't have it back then. They just kind of had these joyless humping sessions to create air. Yeah. And it's just really interesting to me. Like there's something really interesting there that people just seem to find it really strange. That as if, you know, people were always writing explicit letters. And, we, you know, we know there were, for instance, pornography exchanged and things like that. It's not a modern invention. It's like no. the equivalent of sex thing. It's not a modern invention. There's, I mean, there's porn all over Rome, like all yeah, the Roman yeah. Empire. There's exactly. like loads of it. So, why are people so? I mean, I'm not talking about like, you know, the conversations about porn, that's a whole other thing, but yeah, it's the sort of like imagination that, oh, it was courtly love. It was mm. just courtly love that they didn't actually touch each other. And it's that kind of school of thought that I've had people say to me that Heathcliff and Kathy or Elizabeth Bennett and Darcy didn't actually have sex. It was like a courtly love. But yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> they really did. You know, they were going at it, let's be honest. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I remember from Blackadder, the bit where he says, I'm going to sell my mother for this this funny clock and a sack of French porn. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. That's exactly and he it. wore a wig. He wore a wig. You know, like the letters Potemkin and Catherine wrote to each other are, there's no question what they were doing. And, and it's just this kind of like willful, no, no. But they wrote these letters that are like they're, clearly loved each other's company they mm. clearly had a lot of fun together and they clearly loved having sex together yeah obviously they did because they were lovers so there is a rumor that they got married is there any evidence that they get married there's not anything on paper but i don't think we'd expect there to be but well there's not anything on paper in terms of officialdom they basically um lived as a married couple they did everything together. You think of um, the Prince of Wales, later Prince Regent, and Maria Fitzherbert. They kept it under wraps and they did everything together, but they would deny it. Whereas Catherine didn't deny it. And in this particular letter, she actually said, my husband, Potemkin. It wouldn't surprise me, to be honest. Mm. I don't think it would particularly surprise it. Even if it was just seen as, um, you know, some kind of ceremony, it was just to kind of make a bond between them. Yeah. But it wouldn't surprise me at all. It really wouldn't. And... Everything about the relationship feels like it could have gone in that direction, I think. Particularly, I think, if Catherine didn't think he had any ambitions for power or to leverage that position, which might explain why there was nothing official anywhere. But it wouldn't surprise me if they were married. It doesn't seem beyond the realms of possibility. Um, what about children? Did they have any? There is no evidence, but they had... There was a girl called Elizabeth... This is where my pronunciation is going to go way off being. Temkina, apologies if that's wrong, I'm sure it is. But she's kind of came out of nowhere, this little girl, and she was raised as um, Potemkin's ward. 
Catherine never acknowledged her, whereas she did have an illegitimate son who she acknowledged. But um, Elizabeth was placed eventually in the care of a court physician who was very close to the centre of power. And when she came of age, she was absolutely lavished with estates and wealth. Hmm. So I think it's a pretty fair bet that she was their daughter. And because she couldn't officially be recognised as anything, she instead was unofficially recognised. So, you know, there's only one reason she's getting money and land and living the life of a princess. I mean, it's hard to pass that one off as her husband's. <laughs> yes, it avoided the sort of obviously thorny issue that this might be one where people might start to, anyone that was kind of looking for a way, a chink in the armour, that could have been it. Mm. So to just go, no, 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 no. She's just a, a random child that we've taken in through the goodness of her heart and we're going to lavish with huge amounts of wealth and privilege because of course we are. But yeah, it's pretty safe bet she was their daughter. So how did it end? Because it does come to an end. It did come to an end. Catherine got bored. And we obviously, we're quite used to seeing kings and emperors get bored of mistresses. But Catherine got bored of Potemkin. And she didn't get bored of him as a friend. They were friends right to the end. But she had a secretary, Zavadovsky, and she made him her official favourite, which you can imagine would have been a bit, ooh. But he, she started to give Potemkin gifts. She made him a prince to the Holy Roman Empire. And it was seen as a kind of, you know, golden handshake, like, thank you for your serving. So he started to get lots of honours and lots of huge amounts of money, which he was already getting. Sorry, like those uh, gifts at the Windsor weddings, you know, where you invite the exes and give them expensive earrings. Yeah, exactly that. And they just drifted apart. But as I say, they did stay really close friends. And both of them went on to have many love affairs. And right up to the end, they were close friends. And when they were between partners, they would get back together. So it was a bit of a friendly benefit. (laughs) Um, It was quite a good arrangement, I guess, if it suits you. It certainly suited them. But yeah, so it was one of those, it wasn't a happy ever after, but it wasn't a terribly sad one either. It was, I think it just, you know, it's two people getting older, been together quite a long time. And I guess... Both of them had a bit of a roving eye. And if they're both happy to do that, then I guess go for it. They're open marriage, if you will. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. I think it's one of those that quite often, I think I've seen it in fiction, and it's quite often portrayed almost as if it was some sort of like great heartbreaking split. It wasn't. They just just both wanted lots of sex with other people. That's royals for you, isn't it? They were very progressive. Apparently it's certain thing now, so. Yeah, yeah, they were way ahead of their time. You know, they were like they were way ahead, ahead of the time. More yeah. power to at least I guess at least he kept his head and his freedom. A great thank you to Chris, Clemmy and Catherine for joining us today. And thank you listeners for tuning in and catching this episode of If It Ain't Broke. Like, subscribe and share with your friends. Your support means a lot to us, truly. You can find us on social media with the handle If It Ain't Baroque Podcast. If you're in London, please join me on one of my walking tours, including the recently launched Royal Love Stories, where we see where these couples lived, loved, married, and sometimes died. For more history fodder, please see ifitaintbaroque.art and reignoflondon.com. See you next time!